Right. It looks like we're going now. Are you handing uh, it over for me to be host? Yes, I am okay. making you the host. Congratulations. Feel free to give a round of applause or thank you for Ashley for being <laughs> my lovely uh, PowerPoint person. And thank you, Romeo, for supporting her on your head. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to pray to get started. Uh, could I ask Francis if you could pray? And then Francis, when you uh, finish the prayer, Will, could you um, read Matthew chapter 2? Um, you could read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. For, is it okay for both of you guys? Yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you, guys. All right. So we'll pray and then get started. All right. All right. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for uh, our time to gather here. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, these students and uh, our staff and the fact that we can come together, even though we're not being able to be together in person physically. Uh, we're appreciative of this technology where we can uh, come and assemble and and worship and we're reminded lord that this is what this season is all about this time of year uh, we are celebrating the birth of uh, your son jesus christ we're celebrating the fact that he came and dwelt uh, among us as a flesh and blood and that he would live a life of, of suffering um, so that we might receive all uh, the, the blessing and, and the benefits and all uh, the joy of knowing you. Uh, so God, thank you for uh, just this time or we can remember uh, you and remember your son. And even as we've taken our way through the minor prophets, uh, we were even able to see tonight um, a glimpse of, of your son. We're able to uh, see uh, Jesus in the minor prophets um, in our time tonight. So thank you, Lord, for Clifton and uh, appreciate his leadership. Thank you, Lord, for the, the staff and uh, for everyone, Lord, for Will, for Sam, Ashley, Pia, uh, Jennifer, and everyone here, Lord, um, that leads us, that prepares uh, to bring us to a place where we can uh, know you more and love you more. Uh, so thank you, God. Pray for Clifton now as he brings the word to us, I pray that for all of us that we would um, be engaged, Lord, that we would have our video screens on, that we would, even though we're not together, uh, we are here together, Lord, that we can open your word together, hear the same word preached, and we pray, Lord, for the same work of the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts, to change our lives, uh, so that we might see you for who you are, uh, worthy uh, to be worshiped, Lord. So thank you, God. And we pray for our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry, Clifton. Was it Micah 5, 2 or Matthew 2? If you could read Matthew chapter 2, verses starting in verse 1 and just read until verse 12. Okay, cool. I thought I got, uh, that's what I heard. But then I saw the screen. I was like, Micah? Oh, maybe I misheard. <laughs> nope. So I'm reading from Matthew 2. Uh, first one to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, Judea in the days of Herod, the King, behold, wise men from the East came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the King heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, a star that 
they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, mirror, and, be, and being warned in, in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Excellent. Thank you, Will. Now, if you guys are reading from your Bibles right now, obviously it's on the screen for you in the PowerPoint, but if you're reading that text from your Bible and you go over to your Bible, you'll see that Matthew is the beginning of the New Testament and the page beside you at the beginning of the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament rather, is the book of Malachi, the last minor prophet that we'll do in our minor prophet series. But some of you might have a blank page between those two books separating the end of the Old Testament to what we just read the beginning of the New Testament. And that blank page in your Bible might seem like an insignificant blank page, but it actually represents 400 years, 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of this story in the book of Matthew. And during those 400 years, God had not spoken through a prophet. God hadn't spoken through a prophet uh, throughout the re rebuilding of the temple after the Jewish people came back from exile. God hadn't spoken through a prophet through the rise of new superpowers, namely Alexander the Great and his Greek empire, or the next empire, the Roman empire. And even through the rise of the breaking of the Roman empire and the rise of three new empires as a result of the fall of Rome or of, uh, of Greece rather there still was not a prophet of God speaking God's word to the people and there certainly was no prophet yet when a new ruler where we will start today uh, came about on the scene whose name was Herod the Great Herod the Great is the Herod that we just read through in Matthew chapter 2 and Herod the Great has a rather storied history Herod the Great had a father who was also named Herod. He was called Herod Antipater. And Herod Antipater had a buddy. And his buddy, he probably referred to something snappy like JC's or something like that. But we know his buddy as Julius Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And because of that, Julius Caesar gave Herod the Great's father a significant amount of power in Judea. But since he couldn't use all that power by himself, he needed other people to help him. He recruited his two boys. Now, his first boy, who is Herod the Great's brother, was not so significant and really didn't make much of a dent in history. But his brother, Herod Antipater's other son, who we know as Herod the Great, did do a lot. He ended up being able to be in charge of Galilee, then Judea, and then Samaria. And throughout his entire life, he demonstrated not only a skill at ruling, but a thirst for ruling as well, mainly through various forms of fear and violence. He also did this through negotiating with many of the new leaders that were set up over the Romans, and so he grew and grew in power. One, that, uh, one leader that he needed to cozy up to in specific was Caesar Augustus, who's the Caesar in charge of our story here in Matthew chapter 2. Basically, what he did is came up to him and said, listen, you need a skilled and powerful ruler to be in charge of these various areas. And one of those areas that you really need help controlling is Jerusalem. But your problem is you don't only need a skilled ruler, you need a Jewish ruler. Because Jews are only going to listen to another Jew. Listen, if you look at your empire, Caesar Augustus, you're going to see that they have rebelled numerous times. So it'd be a lot easier for you if you put a Jewish person in charge. Now, if you actually look at history, technically Herod the Great was only half Jewish. He had come from another family that had intermingled with the Jewish people. You guys actually know that group. They're called the Edomites. And Edom was that same nation that God destroyed, or at least promised to destroy it, in the book of Obadiah, the very first book of the Minor Prophets that we covered. But still... He mingled with the Jewish people. His family had gone into the Jewish nation, so he was technically Jewish. And Caesar Augustus understood the logic that Herod had put forward, and so he said, okay, well, I see the logic, and we'll put you in charge. And 
From that point on, Herod the Great had one goal in mind, to never lose that power and keep that power with him at all costs. When he landed this power, he set up a personal bodyguard of two thousand soldiers and they were all professionally trained from some of the best areas in the land. Now the only way I could literally equate how skilled his bodyguards were with equating them with like 2,000 small Batmans who were all trained from multiple leagues of shadows around the area. They were that good at what they did and they were all from very very good backgrounds of military training. He also apparently had a network of secret police, just like you see in Eastern Europe in the 1900s, in which he used to create political opinion for himself. Uh, he used them to disseminate, to break up protests, and most often he used them to assassinate people, people from the lowest levels of society and people from the highest levels of society. One of the things he did to try and keep his power was he married into the royal family. He married a Roman woman. But because he already had a wife and son, he exiled them. In fact, never ever saw them again. Now, some people argue that he did lots of good stuff for the Jewish people because he set up amassing building projects and he even set up a temple for them. But in fact, this was really only done so he could create good opinion with the Jewish people for himself. And it proved that he really didn't care because he did lots of things for pagans as well. He set up many, many equally expensive building projects for them because he also needed to be popular with the pagan people. And of course, all of these things were done so that he could keep Rome as happy as possible so he could continue as king. When Matthew chapter 2 opens, Herod has had it pretty good as a ruler for about 30 years. But after these 30 years come, on one seemingly regular day in the throne room, one of his messengers comes in and he says, hey, we've got three guests and they really want to see you. And he says, okay, who are these guests? And the messenger tells him, well, they're three apparently wise men from wherever it is they're from and wherever they're from is really far away. And so Herod decides that he's going to see them because he could deal with talking with some smart men who seem to have come here for good reasons. I mean, they traveled so far. So Herod invites them in, and it seems that they do have a good reason for coming so far. They have been told, due to whatever religion, foreign religion that they are a part of, that apparently a new king has been born. Herod must be thinking to himself, a king being born, that doesn't make any sense I'm the king in these areas, and I'm the king because the king over me is also happy. So clearly there's too many kings around here, and there's no room for any more kings, so they must be wrong. But Herod starts thinking and remembers that in a synagogue greeting or two, or maybe from a passing conversation with someone who is Jewish, he remembers that there was a prophecy of a coming king who would rule over the Jewish people and eventually rule over the whole world. I wonder if there's any chance that it could be the same person. And so he calls in some of the best minds of the Jewish people, the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them, remember that Messiah or that ruler, whoever it was that you were talking about, where is he supposed to be born? Probably nowhere around here, right? Nowhere too close by. And they say, actually, he is supposed to be born somewhere close by. And they determine where he's supposed to be born by going into the book of Micah, the book that we have already studied in our Minor Prophet series. And they go to chapter 5, verse 2, and they see that whenever it is that this Messiah comes, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so at this point, Herod starts sweating, and he starts to seem nervous, and things are not adding up in his favor. And when he looks into the sky and sees this massive, unmistakably clear star that has made the wise men travel so far and he sees that it seems to line up geographically directly over Bethlehem. So Herod has to think fast. Either this is some very strange event or some serious threat to his rulership is now being born. So he tells these wise men, you need to go and you need to tell this 
king that I want to come and worship him as well. But secretly, he is panicking that I need to kill this child. And then finally, one more book of threats in my very large book of threats will be dealt with. Now, if you know the Christmas story, you know that's not what happened. The wise men did, in fact, go to Bethlehem, and they did, in fact, see the baby Jesus Christ. And them, seeing all these things line up, did not react like Herod did. They reacted instead with giving him gifts and falling on their knees in worship. It's interesting to note as well that even though the king of the Jews was born, it was not Jewish people who were, in fact, his first worshipers. It was men who had come from a foreign land. And amazingly, that would be a picture of the beautiful foreign rule that this king would have not only over the Jewish people, but of course, like the scriptures tell us, over the entire world. Now, why start a Christmas message, a Christmas sermon, with talking about Herod as ruler? And the reason is because every single Jew thought that the greatest thing that their coming Messiah, that their coming ruler could do for them was redeem them from the likes of Herod, to redeem them from a supposedly undestroyable, unkillable, and terrible, terrible king. That is the best thing this person could do. But the point is that the Messiah had come to do so much more than that, something different, but much, much greater. If you have your Bibles in front of you and are still in Matthew chapter two, you can switch over to Micah chapter five. That's where we're gonna be dealing with today. Micah chapter five, verse two. This is not part of Micah that we actually got to deal with when we studied Micah, but it does have one of the most powerful verses that was actually read in Matthew chapter two of where this Christ was to be born. And it says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. If you remember when we were in Micah, you'll remember that this was a book about how God was coming to judge his people. He had chosen them to be his precious people, but because they denied him, because they denied obeying him as their ruler and king, he instead came to punish them, which is what sin deserves. And the verse before the verse that I just read for you, in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, it actually talks about this coming judgment upon the Israelite people. In Micah chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That's the bad news that God was giving the people in Micah's day, that they were going to come and be attacked by a foreign leader. And keep in mind, that's very similar to the context of Matthew chapter 2. The Jewish people there are also under a foreign ruler, Herod the Great. But the beautiful thing is that in both contexts, for the Jewish people in Rome in the book of Matthew, and for the Jewish people in Jerusalem before Assyrians became and attacked them in the book of Micah, both are given the same hope in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is that a ruler would come and his character would be shown to be great, gracious, and humble, which is seen through the place that he was born. It was seen through the place that he was born. Something amazing to consider here is when Christ came to rule, he could have come just like Herod was. He could have been a ruler just like Herod. He could have come to judge the people, oppress the people, attack the people. In fact, in the book of Micah, he was supposed to come to judge the people. That was the punishment upon guilty sinners who did not live under his kingdom rule but that's not how he decided to come. Instead, he decided to come, as Micah 5, 5 says, to be our peace. The passage that probably you know and is on many of your Christmas cards in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. That son, that coming king, is described as a wonderful counselor, mighty God, and prince of peace. And so that is the Christmas message 
that I want to help you explain from the book of Micah, specifically in Micah chapter five, verse two, the message that you'll see up there on the PowerPoint is the message that we're going to be dealing with that the origins, that is where Christ came from, the origins of Jesus Christ, Israel's future ruler, reminds us of the way that God would bring sinners under his rule. It reminds us of the way that God will bring sinners under his rule. Now, if you look at the next slide, you'll see the breakdown of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And in that breakdown, you'll see that the main point is that middle section, that Christ is going to come as this Messiah ruler. But where he comes from is explained in the preceding verse and the concluding verse. And those are the two points that I want to touch on that will help us explain what Christmas is supposed to be about through whom the Messiah uh, came from, where the Messiah came from. So very two simple points we'll be going through. And the first is the humble human origins of this ruler, the humble human origins. And that is understood in that very simple two words that are there in Micah chapter five, verse two, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, Bethlehem Ephrathra is most notably just saying a place. Uh, if you look at the next slide, you'll see that there's actually a number of really interesting small indicators of what Bethlehem Ephrathra actually entails. And because of time, we can't go through them, but they're there on the PowerPoint if you want to see them. The main thing is that Ephrathra, which you may not have heard from before, is designating a specific place. So God is actually saying he's not going to come from this Bethlehem, but this Bethlehem, because there's two Bethlehems. And God is showing that even down to the smallest detail, he knows what's going to happen in history because he is ordaining what is happening in history. And what he's going to ordain is this ruler to come that is apparently from a town that's described in our text as too little to be in the tribes. Now, what does he mean that Bethlehem is too little to be in the tribes? Well, what he means is that if you were a city in Judea, in, in the greater area of the Jewish people, you would be conscripted as into military service if the nation demanded it, if you had more than a thousand people. And if you had more than a thousand people, you were kind of considered an official town or place to conscript members from or place to get leaders from. But Bethlehem was so small, it had less than a thousand people, which means you couldn't actually take them into the records like you have in Joshua chapter five or Nehemiah chapter 11. And you couldn't conscript anyone for military service or leadership. They were too small. Everyone was needed to be in that town. And so the point that's going to be made here is that the Messiah could have come from anywhere, but he came from here, the lowliest and meekest and smallest place in all of Judea. And more specifically, the most important person ever to be born is going to be born in one of the most unimportant places on earth. Now, it's more important than just this. There's a more important reason that the Messiah is going to be born from Bethlehem. And Luke chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, the beginning of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke, explains that very helpfully for us. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says this, that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. The reason that Micah predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem is because he has an ancestor who was also born in Bethlehem. And the connection that the Messiah is making in Micah chapter five and Matthew chapter two is that the Messiah is going to be the great, 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 great grandson of King David. Now, why is this connection important? Now, you might think it's just because it's interesting or just because it's neat. Wow, Christ happens to be born from the line of David. Now, if you have ever talked to me about movies or television or just popular culture in general, you'll know that I love talking about celebrities who are from Canada or who are from Vancouver. I have a buddy who's the exact same way when he talks about the Star Wars movies. If anyone mentions Star Wars, he says, guess what? I am actually from the county that George Lucas is from. Isn't that cool? 
And I actually think it's kind of ironic because the guy who plays Anakin Skywalker is actually from Vancouver. So whatever. But the point is that we both really like mentioning that just because it's interesting. Wow. It's cool to be from the same hometown as that guy. And so the question is, is that what Micah is doing? Is that what Matthew chapter two is doing? Is it just mentioning this because it's interesting? What is interesting, but it's more because it's very, very important to know. The point is that God is going to prove that by his strength, the weakest of men can become the greatest of kings. If you know the story of how King David was picked to be king. It was because God told the prophet at that time, Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, to go and find a king from where he would bring him. And he brought Samuel to the smallest area, to Bethlehem. But even more than that, he didn't just bring him to the smallest village. He brought him to the smallest member of a large family. All of the brothers of King David were soldiers or skilled in multiple different things, but not David. David was small and he was a shepherd, but still God showed beginning here and throughout the history of the entire Old and New Testament and indeed the story of all of history is that God was going to choose the weakest of people and the most surprising of people to make the biggest point. I've been reading recently about a historical figure named Skanderbeg. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. His name is Skanderbeg. Francis seems to be pretty pumped about it, and I'm happy he is because it's a very, very interesting figure in history. He was from a very small town at the time in Kruja, which is in Albania. And Albania at this point was under the dominance in the mid-1600s from the nation of the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans were the biggest nation in the world at that point. Now, the Ottomans came into Kruja, and they took Skanderbeg when he was a small child, and they trained him to be one of the greatest military leaders in the world at that point. And they sent him from the Ottoman Empire back to Albania to conquer the Albanians. But the amazing thing is he didn't actually conquer the Albanians because when he went there, he was moved with compassion to help the people that he had come from rather than to subject them. And so what he did is he actually went back to his hometown of Kruja, and with never more than 20,000 troops, which was not a lot of troops, he ended up defending Albania from Kruja for 25 years from the Ottomans, the greatest nation on earth. Now, it is really cool to hear how humble beginnings can bring about such amazing people, but God is going to use Christ to make an even greater example. Christ may have come from a small town, but God's purposes for him were to destroy the biggest of our problems, which was not Herod. The biggest of our problems was sin and death, everything that keeps us away from the Father. And he didn't need any human credential. He didn't need any human prestige. He didn't need any human power to do that. He raised up his son from the smallest of praises to prove without a doubt that God himself was the strength of this Messiah, not any human capacity. God himself must be the agent by which this Messiah rises from nothing. It could only be him. One commentator said it this way, that Israel's future greatness does not depend upon a great human king, but on divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing. And that king was promised to David so long ago in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible that talk about how God made a promise, a covenant to David, that David, while being king, could rest easy knowing that one day David would have a great, great, great grandchild. And that king would be so great as to rule over not only Israel, but over the entire world and over the entire world forever. And that promise was made complete in Jesus Christ, who was the great, 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 great grandchild of David. The point is that Christ being born of David is proving his qualification to be king. He can sit on the throne because he has met the qualification of being from the Davidic line. He has a right to the throne, and in his birth, he is claiming it. 
This is exactly what the angel tells Mary in Luke chapter one, verse 32, when Gabriel tells Mary about her coming baby. He says to her that he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, this is the problem that we are arriving at in this question. If I want to be part of God's kingdom, if I want God's king to rule over me, I actually need to be in God's kingdom. The problem is we should know that sin keeps us out of God's kingdom. And so if God's coming ruler is going to come and rule over us, we need to be in his kingdom first, but we're not in his kingdom. And this is the amazing thing about Christ. He came not only to be our king, but to make it possible for us to be in his kingdom. And the way he did that was in how he came. Because if he is from the line of David, that means he came as a human being, a living, breathing, in the flesh, human being. If you have your Bibles, go over to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to give you a very small explanation of a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 2, and you're going to hear a longer explanation of it on Sunday when Pastor Isaiah shares from the same passage in a bigger depth. But Hebrews chapter 2 has a couple of verses that are going to help us understand why Christ needed to come as a human in order to be our king. Hebrews chapter 2, I have to get there myself actually, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says this, it was fitting that he, being Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 is trying to explain that Christ was a king when he came, but he didn't rule immediately. And the reason that his rulingship wasn't seen, the reason that his kingdom wasn't visible to everyone at once is because he was proving himself to be the perfectly worthy ruler. And Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that the way he was made our ruler, not just a ruler, but our ruler, was that he needed to be made like his citizens. We needed a human king to rule humanity. And that way into his kingdom was through suffering and death. You can think of it this way. If you were to be removed from the United States, if you were just to go for vacation or go visit family members somewhere else, you can't just walk back into the United States. You need a passport. And that passport proves I am a citizen of this kingdom. I can come back into this country. It proves that you've been a citizen. Now, if we want to be in God's kingdom, but have sinned, we are removed from that kingdom. Sin is that thing that stops us from being a citizen. So how do we get this passport? How do we get this means by which we can enter the kingdom? Well, two things need to happen. If we ever want to get into the kingdom, we need to have our sin removed from us. And the passport we need to be given is perfection, perfect righteousness. Because God cannot allow sinful humans to enter his kingdom. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, what does it say about Christ as our coming ruler? Verse 17 says this. Therefore he, that is Christ, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look up just two more verses at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, and see it says something similar there. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Two phrases there that he partook in flesh and blood, and that he was made like his brothers mean this. Christ needed to be a perfect human to allow people to come into his kingdom. 
We needed a human to be perfect for us so that unperfect humans could enter the kingdom. This is explained in this text as what's called the great exchange. That Christ, when he came, lived a perfect life. And through his death, he might give us his perfect life as that passport, that means by which we can enter the kingdom. But at the same time, we also have lots of imperfection, lots of sin that we've already committed. But if that punishment is meant on Christ, the human king, it might be punished on him instead of us. And this is the means by which Christ comes as a king, that he could have come to allow all of that to be put on us, all of God's judgment and punishment upon us. But instead, he came to graciously rule us and invite him into our kingdom by becoming a human being. Why is it so important that Christ is born as a human baby in Bethlehem? It is important because we needed a perfect human life to provide a perfect life for us and a perfect human death to die for us so that we could become citizens in God's kingdom. From the moment Christ was incarnated, from the moment his brain began to develop and understand and when he searched the scriptures, he knew and understood and learned perfectly that he came for one reason, that he would live for us perfectly and die for our sins and one day rule over us instead of punish us. And that rule would last for eternity and his rule would be gracious and peaceful. That is why it is so important to understand Christ's humble human origins because we needed Christ as human to die and live for us. And that is the humble human origins of Christ. And the last one, the second one that we'll look at is the other side of Micah chapter five, verse two. And that is talking about his divine origins, his ultimate divine origins. That second part of Micah chapter five, verse two says that from you shall come forth for me, that is for God, one to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The important words there are that last part, from old, from ancient days. Now, scholars have a number of different things that this from old, from ancient days could mean. The first opinion is that it could mean that this was promised from the time that God promised uh, David that a ruler would come from his line, that the promise began then. That's the first option. The second option is that this was promised as far back as time began from the mind of the father, that from the very beginning of time, even before time existed, God planned that there would be a coming ruler. But there's a third option as well. And the third option is that the Messiah himself existed before time began, and he himself always planned to come and become ruler. And the answer really is that it's all three but most specifically, it is the third option. Yes, it is true that from old means all the way back from the promise of the Davidic covenant, God plans to come and die for his people. It is true that from eternity past, from before time began, God the Father planned to send his son as ruler. But the son himself, this human being, did not begin as a human but from eternity past, it is God himself, Jesus Christ, also being God fully and perfectly condescended to us, taking on human flesh, but always being God. Christ was not only fully man, but he was fully God. Now you may have met people at churches or may have seen them on YouTube who have said, you know what, I believe that Christ did exist, and I believe that he was a good guy. I think he really existed, and he taught us very good things. He was a real human. He really existed. And we might think that's a good thing. We might think, you know what, it's great that I can finally run into someone who doesn't hate God, uh, someone who doesn't hate Jesus Christ. They actually think he exists. They have a positive reaction to who Jesus Christ is. But it is, and I cannot stress this enough, of utmost importance that that cannot stop there. Christ has to be a human, but he cannot be only human. 
The fact is that only God is perfect. God, therefore, is the only one who could provide someone to break into imperfection and provide perfection for imperfect sinners. But the reality is as well that if God is only perfect, God cannot share the glory with another. God himself can only be the ruler, and he has demanded that right of no one but himself. But what is the solution if we need a human ruler, if we need a human savior to die for our sins and to rule over us? Well, the result is that it must be God himself who must take on human flesh and live for us and die for us and be our ruler. The very first two verses of Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two say this, that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Christ did not only come to rule over the world, he was also the one who created the world. This is the Messiah who would come. The very simple point that we need to understand about this message at Christmas is that that is the king that we need. We need that king. You need that king. I don't think I need to tell you that the world is messed up. It's messed up in more ways than it was ever before COVID hit our shores. It was worse before anyone had to be locked down and be more lonely than they were before or more frustrated or more bored than they were before. And I'm not trying to say that every single human ruler is awful. King David was a good ruler, but none of them are perfect. And we need a perfect ruler. And we desire to be in a place that doesn't have all of these things that are messed up. But the problem is we are messed up people and we deserve this world. We deserve the world that is not only cursed from the beginning of sin entering the world, but we allowed to through the sin of our father, Adam, in which we desired our own sin and not God's just rulership. And he desired to send something greater than that and therefore give us something greater than that. He provided his son to be our ruler in his gracious kingdom. Through God entering into time itself, taking on human flesh and dying for us so that we might live with him forever. And if you need confirmation that this is the kind of ruler that you need to have, look at Micah chapter five, verse four. Micah chapter five, verse four. After Micah says where the Christ is going to come from, he explains who this Christ is, and he explains why you need this Christ. Micah chapter 5, verse 4 says this. It's on your screen in front of you as well. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. There are four things that that verse tells us about this Messiah. One is that he would be a shepherd. If he is a shepherd, that means he is a humble ruler. And remember, just like Herod, he could have come as a dictator to make us do things, but instead a shepherd like drawing its sheep into the fold and leading them there. So this Messiah would be a gracious, humble ruler, that he would lead his people with care, understanding, sometimes correction, but also with patience. That is the kind of humble leader that this shepherd would be. The second is that he would be it through the strength of the Lord. If he has the strength of the Lord, it means that God himself blesses and ordained this leader to come. Remember, he didn't just come out of nowhere for no reason. He came out of somewhere to do the greatest thing that anybody has ever done in history, the greatest and most compassionate thing of, in history, and he could only do that through God, and he did. It also means that any person who would be under this rule knows that that rulership would never weaken, never falter. It would continue perfectly, and it would even be the pattern for the people who would come into that kingdom, that we would be strengthened the same way that our shepherd is strengthened. The third thing that this leader does for us is that he allows us to dwell secure. If he allows us to dwell secure, it means that he came to bring peace. 
that his people will come into a kingdom that he rules graciously and mercifully. And it brings us joy and hope and peace without a threat of it ever being taken away from us. There's no threat that that peace will ever be destroyed or end. It will be eternally peaceful. And the fourth thing that the shepherd does is that his rule is to the ends of the earth. It is a global reign. Just like the wise men came from a foreign land, so not only the Jewish people, but all people from foreign nations would be invited into this leader's kingdom. Psalm chapter 102, verse 15 says that the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. He is going to come again and he's going to come and punish those who do not submit to his rule but he is also going to lead in those people who have submitted to his rule, who he has led into his care, and he will bring them into his kingdom. The whole point of this, as we bring this to a close, is to ask you this question. Is Christmas for you primarily great because you know that this ruler has come? That that ruler in Micah chapter 5 verse 4 has come. He came to save you. John chapter 3, verse 17 says that for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world in order that the world might be saved through him. He came as this baby in Bethlehem to save. But the reality is that he is coming again. And the reason he is not here yet is because he is still allowing citizens into the kingdom. One day he is going to come and he is going to punish and judge those who do not want to be in his kingdom. And they will be in the kingdom that we already, if we are unsaved, belong to now. One that Hebrews chapter 2 talks about is one of fear and death and the devil, lifelong slavery. But Hebrews 2 also says that Christ the Messiah came to bring us out of that kingdom and into his kingdom. And the question is, where are you? If you have never enjoyed ever listening to the things of God, if you have never ever enjoyed doing anything God has ever wanted to, then you might not understand how wonderful his kingdom is and how undeserving we are to be in that kingdom. And if you do understand, you might still be asking yourself the question, why? Why would I ever be invited into such a wonderful kingdom when I am such a terrible person? And the question is just because God loves you. God loves you and he cares for you. And he is looking for worshipers not because he needs them, but because they will bring him glory. I don't know what your plans are for this Christmas with everything that has changed and so constantly changes. You might have really great plans to just relax and just spend the time doing as you want to. You might have way bigger plans than that. Now that you're finally free from school, you have plans to work on your future or your next year of school. And you need big plans to deal with those big ideas that you want to enact, that you want to fulfill. So whether you have no plans or big plans, you need to understand first God's plan for you. It is for your sanctification, which means it is for your salvation. You need to first consider if you are a citizen in this kingdom, and if you are not, you need to pray to him now and to repent of your sin, to turn away from it. And most Importantly, submit to his plan for your life that he would be gracious and merciful to you and he will give you the strength to do it and he will reveal his goodness to you so that you may enter into that kingdom. And if you already know this, if you truly believe that you have submitted to Christ as your ruler, you also need to do something. You need to determine how you are going to spend this holiday season. Are you going to put aside any time to honor him as king? Not perfectly, not every single second, every single iota of your time, but sometimes somewhere to consider the fact that Christ owns your whole life and all your devotion. You need to find some time to pray, especially to pray for other people who are not citizens of that kingdom yet. You need to find time to understand how great and worthy and wonderful this king is by reading the scriptures. And you need to spend some time considering how much of your life proves that you are a citizen in this kingdom. His citizens walk differently because the Holy Spirit has empowered them with the fruit of the Spirit. 
Now, none of us are going to be able to spend this holiday season perfectly. I can tell you right now that there are many times where I'm trying to figure out how I might redeem time that I have lost. But the good thing is this, that Christ has revealed himself as ruler and king in the greatest kingdom to come you could possibly imagine. And he has provided all of the means by which you may enter that kingdom. And it is submitting to him in faith, recognizing how worthy he is of your love and devotion and turning to him in repentance that he would save you and he will save you. And one day when you pass away or when Christ comes again, he will invite you as a citizen into his good and gracious kingdom and under his good and gracious rule. And that is the most important thing that you need to understand about what Christmas is supposed to be about. So let's pray. Father, it is impossible to fathom just how good you are and how it is that you could ever accept guilty sinners into your world, but you have. And it is our duty to understand the ways in which we might turn to you, love you, and submit to your rule. Even now, we do not see your kingdom, Lord. Even Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 says that we don't see your kingdom, but we've seen you and we know that it does exist. You are reigning now and you will make that reign visible one day. Lord, give us strength to trust in that. Christmas. Give us strength to know how wonderful it is to learn about you in your word, how wonderful it is to pray to you as our king, and how wonderful it is to live in that citizenship, to do good works that it says you have prepared for us beforehand, that you have ordained that we would be kind and gracious and merciful and patient to those around us. And when we are not, Lord, please forgive us. Forgive us of the ways that we are not perfect citizens, but we are seen as perfect citizens because of what you have done for us in Christ. You clarify our thoughts and hearts. You help our consciences to walk correctly. And you give our feet hope to continue into the paths of good works because you have given us the hope that you are ruling now. No matter what happens in this world, we have nothing to fear our salvation is held safely in your arms. Please help those who do not understand this, who do not submit to that. Please help them to understand just how wonderful it is to be part of that kingdom and that they would seek to come into that kingdom through the means that you have already provided. You are a good and gracious king. Help us understand that, Lord. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys, as always, for just listening to uh, a long sermon. I understand. I hope the PowerPoint can be a little helpful. I hope also that we dealt with some of literally the biggest questions and hardest questions in the entire Christian faith. And so if you have questions, that's okay. I am not a perfectly clear communicator, uh, and I am not perfect at explaining all these things. If you have questions, please, please ask them to either me or to all of your uh, leaders, and you're going to have a chance to do that. We're going to go into our small groups. Um, so what I will do is uh, Sam, uh, well, first of all, if you already have a, a group